the cross. Uh, that is the title of my sermon. The big idea, the cross is God's gracious solution to the problem of sin. Look only to the cross. We're so prone to look elsewhere, aren't we? Look only to the cross. Um, to what may we compare the cross? What is like the cross? Back in 31 BC, there was a great battle. Uh, it was an important battle. It was the Battle of Actium, and it was between two individuals that were vying for the throne, uh, Mark Antony and Octavian. Octavian won. And, and the reason this battle was so significant is that for a long time, there had been civil unrest across the empire. Um, there was no peace. And what this battle meant was finally peace. Things would be different now. There was a new Caesar. That sounds pretty grand. Maybe you've never studied Roman history, but pretty important battle. Um, this is probably more relevant for us here. I think of marriage. When you get married, that's a big day. I mean, everything changes, right? It's so funny. I mean, as believers, it's like, you know, for a guy, you know, you've had like your own place and all of a sudden you got a roommate. You guys are living together, doing life together. You've been joined together and everything's different. Or having a child. I mean, I can imagine if you've not had a child, maybe hard to relate to this, um, but if you've had many, I know many of you are parents, um, or maybe it's been a long time, but that moment when that baby is handed to you and you're like, wow, Lord, you, you've given me this life to train and to disciple and to love and care for me. Everything's different, right? Everything's different. The cross is like that, but on a more cosmic level. Amen? The cross is revolutionary. The cross is the ultimate game changer. Because of it, we who have trusted in Jesus relate to God differently. Because of the cross and our faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, we have, listen to this, a new king, a new verdict, a new peace, a new power, a new hope, and we belong to a new people. For those who trust in Jesus, everything is now different because of the cross. The cross puts us on a brand new trajectory. Now, as always, we've got to pay close attention to context here. This remarkable passage that Dave read, it flows out of Paul's warning against false teachers in the church. It's interesting that he would go from there to the cross, from focusing on false teachers, warning against false teachers, to then explicating the cross. Colossians 2.4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. What is Paul up to? And then he goes into the cross. What's he doing here? The key to fighting sin and avoiding the trap of false teaching is keeping our eyes on the, on the cross. Because the cross is everything. The cross is everything. So what do we learn in our passage? If you have your little handout, everybody have that? If you don't have one, look under your chair. I'm just kidding. There's not going to be one there. But raise your hand and we can get you one you're taking notes, but uh, three questions, and these are really my three points this evening from our text. Number one, who is the cross for? 
And I pray that the Lord would remind us of these things tonight. So number one, who is the cross for? Number two, what did it do? What did God actually accomplish through the cross? And number three, what does the cross mean now for those who have trusted in Jesus? What does it mean now? So number one, who is the cross for? And maybe it seems like a simple question. The, the answer is obvious. Who's it for? Well, again, I think we need to be reminded of these things. Don't you? Verse 13, and you, and he's talking to the believers, right? Paul says, in you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So who is the cross for? It is for the spiritually dead. It is for sinners. The cross is for sinners. The cross is good news for sinners. Now, we live in a time when using words like sinner to describe anyone will be deemed as politically incorrect. Some will say, hey, bro, that, that word is too harsh. Come on, we all make mistakes. Well, according to God's word, this language is entirely appropriate, for that is what we all are. What are we? We're sinners. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now, Paul doesn't pull any punches. That's why I like Paul so much. And in all fairness, he uses the same language to describe himself. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So even Paul would agree that he's a sinner. So the cross reveals our state, our hopeless and helpless condition apart from Christ. Paul wants us to remember that our situation was grave. In fact, we were already in the grave, spiritually speaking, right? Not only did we need forgiveness, but we need a miracle. We needed a miracle to first be made alive so that we could then grasp in faith the Christ who lived, died, and rose again. And this is seen in the verses preceding our passage. And I think you'll see where I'm going here. Okay, so again, who is the cross for? Sinners. And we are sinners. We need to be reminded that we are sinners. But the good news is, the Father no longer sees us that way, right? He sees us as righteous, those who have trusted in His Son. More on that later. Colossians 2, 11-12. This is the context. So again, what came before this? The warning against what? false teachers. Paul wants us to fix our eyes on the cross so as to avoid the trap of false teachers. But what else does Paul tell us in the context that proceeds? Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this circumcision made without hands, the circumcision of Christ, refers to the spiritual circumcision of the, the heart, something that God has done inside of us, right? Those who have trusted in Jesus. Those who have been spiritually circumcised have been made alive by the Spirit to then trust in Jesus, have been joined to Jesus 
and have received forgiveness because of Jesus. And this reality is further depicted in our baptism. Those who were spiritually dead have died to sin and have been raised to walk new life with Christ. Now, if this passage, verses 11 and 12, the passage which comes before our text that was read, if it's all about new life, what's the opposite of new life? Death. What was our state apart from Christ? We were dead. We were dead. The cross is good news for those who were dead, for sinners. And that's all of us. The the language of verses 11 and 12 looks back to the promise of the new covenant, uh, picking up language from Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, where God promises to forgive sins. God promises to take away our old stony heart and to give us a new heart. God promises to put his spirit inside of us. The circumcision of Christ is a metaphor for the new birth. We were dead. But something has happened to bring us from death to life. And this is further confirmed by Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here, Paul identifies our spiritual deadness in the uncircumcision of our flesh as the problem. Everybody say problem. That's the problem in God's work of new birth as the solution. Richard Mellick writes, death calls for a resurrection, which believers have in Christ. So again, the reason for this, the new birth is a reminder of our hopeless in helpless state. What can the dead do? Nothing, right? Nothing. We could do nothing. We weren't just struggling spiritually. The cross wasn't simply for those who were struggling, right, spiritually. We were spiritually dead. Paul reminds us of who the cross is for. He reminds us of who we were before our gracious collision with the grace and mercy of God at the cross. Too often, and I include myself here, too often we fail to remember that we are included in Paul's indictment in Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12, 13. <laughs> no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. When living in Washington, so we were there for 10 years, Washington State, And I remember during about the first five or six years, I would say something that an East Texan would know. I would use language or an illustration that if you're from this area, you would get it. But people up there were like, what are you talking about? I remember the youth group, when I was a youth pastor there, I would try to use like hunting illustrations and kids were just like, what? This was a reminder. I hope this makes sense. When that would happen, i get these blank stares like, what are you talking about, man? Y'all? Who says y'all? It was a reminder of where I'd come from, okay? So when I'd be met with those blank stares, it was a reminder of where I'd come from. When we sin, it's a reminder of where we came from. And more than that, what we've been rescued from. Amen? We need to regularly remember what we were saved from. I don't think we do that enough. I don't think we do. In his book, Finally Free, Heath Lambert talks about the difference between godly grief or sorrow and worldly sorrow. And that's 2 Corinthians 7. He writes, 
Godly sorrow recognizes this holy intolerance of sin. It is fear mingled with an awareness of mercy that God didn't give us the just punishment we deserved. Do we realize what we justly deserved? Who's the cross for? For sinners. What do sinners deserve? God's wrath, death, eternal death. I think we are too often too entitled, myself included. We're too entitled. Forgetting what we deserve. This is to forget grace. Don't forget grace. Friends, the cross is for sinners. That is what we are, all of us, sinners who, through Christ, have been graciously reconciled to God. Right? Amen? Those who have been made alive to trust in Jesus have received forgiveness for all their trespasses. But in order for this forgiveness to be applied, it had to first be secured, okay? It had to be secured. So what has God done to provide this forgiveness? Where did it come from? Did God merely just conjure it out of thin air? Forgiveness, no. Something had to happen, something horrible, something tragic. The sinless Savior had to die for sinners like us, the righteous for the unrighteous. We often speak of the free gift of salvation, right? And we we do that to remind us that we can do nothing to save ourselves. God did it all, right? Grace. But we must never forget the costliness of this gift. It costs us nothing, but it costs Jesus everything, his life, his life. Salvation is by grace. God initiates the new birth, right? The the spiritual circumcision that we just read about. And he went to the cross to secure our forgiveness. Again, the cross is good news for for sinners. Sinners are graciously made alive by the Spirit to trust in Jesus, to, to respond appropriately to Jesus by repenting and trusting in him. And those who repent and believe are, what? We're saved. But again, here's the question hanging in the air. If the cross is good news for sinners, what did God do to secure this? What had to happen to secure this? Right? We're, if you're in Christ, say, I'm forgiven. But, but what happened to secure this forgiveness? And that brings us to our second question. And this is laid out for us in verses 14 and 15. So the first point, the first question, who is the cross for? The cross is for sinners. Raise your hand if you're a sinner. All of us fall into that category, okay? Number two, what did God accomplish to the cross? Verses 14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in who? In Jesus. Now, before we unpack these verses, it's important that we first realize that forgiveness of sin is our greatest need. It's not just a great need. It's not just one need. It is the need. It is the ultimate need. It's greater than our health. It's greater than our wealth. We need forgiveness. Jesus illustrates this for us so well in Mark 2. And I, I, I told some guys I'm doing a study in Mark right now with some guys in the church. And I have preached Mark 2, 1 to 12 on three continents. It's my go-to. I've been in some places where 
if you go on a mission trip, it's very likely that a pastor says, hey man, can you preach? Like, like tomorrow, yeah. No, no, like right now. Let's go. Okay, let's go. And if that ever happens to me, I promise you, Mark 2, 1 to 12, it's coming. I'm not going to preach it for you now, but Jesus makes a really cool point here. You guys know the story, Mark 2, 1 to 12? Four men bring a paralytic to Jesus. He's in Capernaum. He's returned home. He's at his home base. He's teaching in a house, preaching the word of God, most likely the good news. The four friends get there, and guess what? Hey, Joe, sorry, there's no room, man. The house is full. So they're able to access the roof. They get up there. They break through. They break a hole. They lower this guy. It's obvious what his need is. Before this, anytime a a sick person or someone who's demon-possessed is brought to Jesus, what does he do? He heals them, but that's not what he does for Joe. I'm just calling, I don't know what his name was, guys, by the way. I'm sorry. Maybe Joseph, that was a popular name. We'll call him Joe for short. Jesus, because of his faith, forgives his sin. Whoa! And then later, he heals the man to prove that he had the authority to do the first. But why do, we, why do we see forgiveness of sin fronted in that text? What is Jesus trying to teach us? I mean, the obvious need is, bro needs to walk. He can't walk, he can't work, can't take care of his family, relies on others, right? That's an important need, but oh, no, no, no. There is a greater need. There is an infinitely more significant need, and that is the need for forgiveness. And Jesus does that first. You're like, why don't you preach that passage tonight? Well, could have, but I didn't. You got the mini version. Oh, funny story. Quickly, two seconds. I preached that passage in Africa at the church, and uh, man, when you preach with an interpreter, it's so hard because you, you say a few lines, and then you have to just wait. And there were times I'm like, hey, are you adding to my sermon? Like, I said two things, and you're just like going on. I'm like, he's just filling in, I think. Anyways, I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. The goal of our second point is to understand how the cross functions to provide forgiveness for those who have been made alive by the Spirit to trust in Jesus. The end of verse 13 reads, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Everybody say all. Why is this encouraging? God's provision of forgiveness in Jesus Christ is exhaustive. Now, some might be tempted to think, and maybe you've thought this before, there's no way Jesus could forgive that. Yeah, maybe this, but, but not that. Not that. Not this particular sin. The language of all of our trespasses speaks of the completeness of Jesus' work. How did he do this? This is where verse 14 comes in. Paul continues in verse 14 with, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Paul provides us with the means by which God has provided forgiveness for sinners in verse 14. So let's read the end of verse 13 and then verse 14 together, okay? So end of verse 13, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Somebody say, how? All? Surely not. Surely we misread that. We did not misread it. All. That's an important word. What if the text had said some? No assurance. I'm terrified right now, right? But I'm not, I'm not terrified. Why? Because it says all, okay? And then we have the word by, by means. Here's the means. By which forgiveness for all of our sins has been provided. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So how did God secure and provide 
forgiveness for his people. It's imperative that we as Christians understand the intricacies of the cross. I promise you this, the better you understand the cross, the better you will be able to worship Jesus and the better your evangelism will be, okay? I just take my word for that. I promise you. It's like a child. It's like a child who knows his dad goes to work. He knows daddy goes to work, he comes home. I guess that's important. That's what daddy does. But then the child is made aware of this. Hey, you know what? Maybe mom pulls him aside, feels like Jimmy's not been appreciative. Jimmy, do you realize that your daddy goes to work 12 hours a day, working construction in the hot Texas sun so that we can have food on the table, so that we can have clothes on our back and a roof over our head. And Jimmy's like, whoa. Wow, I just thought dad went to work. I thought that's what grownups did, but now I realize that there's more to it, right? There's greater appreciation on the part of the son once he fully understands the extent of the father's work. We need to know not only that the cross happened, but specifically what happened. What happened at the cross? What's the extent of God's work for his people at Calvary? Three things. Let's go. You ready? Number one, he canceled our debt at the cross. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside nailing it to the cross. Man, this is a cool Greek word. The word canceled comes from the Greek word exalepho, exalepho. And it means, this is cool, to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence. (laughs) Snap, right? Evidence be gone. That's what the word means. One more time to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence, to wipe out completely. For those in Christ, our record of debt has been obliterated. Wow, obliterated, it's gone. There is no longer any condemning evidence against us if we're in Christ, if we've trusted in Jesus. Now, the record of debt refers to the debt owed to God because of whose sin? our sin, namely our failure to keep God's holy commands. Imagine a young married couple, and they bring massive student debt into this marriage, and they got a mortgage, a new mortgage they can barely keep up with. They're struggling, a lot of debt, okay? They feel it. They're just starting out in marriage. This causes stress and worry, but one day, the sweet grandma comes along and says, hey, kids, listen, I'm going to cover your school debt. I'm going to pay off your house. You're debt-free. Thanks, Grandma. No, are you kidding me? You're going to, like at my wedding, so funny, I'm walking down the aisle to get in position, and my mom, she, I, just, I pick her up and I hug her. Like, I love my mom. I think I embarrassed her. She's really small, so I was just like, hug. But imagine for that couple, the relief and the joy, knowing their debt has been covered. Do you know that relief? Do you have that relief? Do you have that joy? If you have Jesus, then you know what I'm talking about, amen? The the debt's been what? What's the word mean? Obliterated, (laughs) that is so cool, man, obliterated. 
It's gone. But again, the intricacies of the cross. What exactly took place at the cross to wipe this debt clean? I, I want to understand that. So prior to the cross, Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He completely kept and fulfilled God's perfect holy standard, the law. And then at the cross, what happened? He took our place, absorbing and satisfying God's wrath against our sin. Because we couldn't pay the debt, right, we're in trouble. We're sinners, and we deserve punishment. So not only did Jesus live the life we could not live, he lived for us, he also died for us. I mean, we say that every week, and I hope it never gets old. I hope you're not, come on, we know he lived life, we shouldn't have died today. Come on, I mean, guys, friends, every time we hear that, we should just be like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Without that, lost. Without that, I would be obliterated for eternity. Christ paid our debt for our sin in our place. One cannot fully grasp the significance of the cross without understanding the doctrine of penal substitution. Penal substitution, that sounds strange. What does that mean? Punishment in our place. Jesus was punished in our place to satisfy a holy and righteous God. And I've used this before with youth. I've used it with the adults here. Remember, this was the little pithy statement by which we can remember the gospel. Christ in our place by his grace to bring us into his space. (laughs) Daniel, you like that. We're going to work on a song, bro, together. We can do that, okay. Christ in our place, by his grace, to bring us into his space. Amen? What about the phrase? This is cool. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Set aside what? Nailed what to the cross? This image comes from the Roman world. It's a reference to the note that would be nailed atop of the cross, stating, right, the individual's what? Their crimes. That for which they were being punished. It was like their rap sheet, Okay? How embarrassing. So again, this this is a big deal. This is capital punishment. And what they've done is placed above their head for all to see. But here we see the irony of the cross. Jesus was executed, not for his sins, but for, for ours. So we're to imagine the note listing out all of our transgressions, our sins being nailed upon the cross of Christ. That is literally what happened. That's literally what happened. Did he die for his sin? He died for our sin. F.F. Bruce wrote, Jesus took that signed acknowledgement of indebtedness, which stood as a perpetual witness against us and canceled it by his death. If you are in Christ, If you're wondering, how do I get in Christ? You trust in him. That's it. You trust in Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, guess what? Your debt's been canceled. And what took place at Calvary and what's been applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit is infinitely more significant than grandma coming along and paying off your student loan and your mortgage. I would be so thankful for that, right? Praise God for that. But listen. What happened for us who have trusted in Jesus is infinitely more significant. Amen? Because you can work off that debt. 
given enough time, right? I mean, school, school debt, home debt. But this debt we're talking about, none of us can work off. None of us can. But one, Jesus, the Savior. Amen? Woo! Isn't that exciting? What joy. What joy. Next, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Again, this is pretty cool. What did he do? Disarmed the rulers and authorities. The verb to disarm comes from the Greek word apekduomai, apekduomai. And it refers to the stripping away of weapons and hence the removal of power and authority. The demonic powers armed with accusations aimed at us have been what? They've been disarmed. Their accusations have been stripped of their powers. Our verdict because of faith in Christ is what? Not guilty. Our verdict before faith in Christ was guilty. Satan means what? Satan. Accuser. That's what the Hebrew word means, accuser. But the cross has reversed our status before God. The evil one cries out to God against Christians. See, they have not kept your law. They are guilty and they deserve punishment. And how does Christ respond? No. I kept the law on their behalf. I took the punishment they deserve upon myself at the cross. I, who have exhausted sin's power and paid their debt, receiving sin's punishment, represent those who trust in me. The powers of evil have been disarmed because the evidence has changed. It's changed. What happened to that evidence? That accusing evidence? What happened to it? It's been what? Obliterated. No mas. The powers of evil have been disarmed because the evidence has changed. We who have trusted in Christ now have the righteousness of Christ applied to us, a perfect righteousness. Amen? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lastly here, he put, man, this is, this is so good. He put the ruler's and authorities to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So he didn't just disarm, like, what's up, right? It's like someone's holding a weapon at you, just, ah. Anybody do that before? I hope you've never been in that situation. Had a gunpoint, yeah, Where's your weapon? It's on the floor. You've been disarmed. I'm sorry I did that. No, I'm not. I don't care. He didn't just disarm the enemies of God. But he defeated them. He defeated them. Here we see the wisdom of God on display. What appeared to be the Son of God's demise was actually his victory. Through the cross, the curse was broken and the way open to fellowship with God through forgiveness, right? When an enemy nation was defeated in ancient times, and this is like Greco-Roman history, you can read about this. Paul uses the same language in 2 Corinthians. He applies it to himself, actually. But when an enemy nation was defeated, 
the king of that nation, this is, this is pretty hardcore, okay? So imagine Rome is expanding the empire. Small nation opposes them. They wipe them out with their massive army. They capture their king, and this is what they would do. They would capture the king. They would strip him of his royal robes, and they would parade that defeated king through the city of Rome. It was a parade, and it was meant to shame that enemy nation. And then at the heart of the city, you know what they would do? They would execute him. They would execute him. This is what Paul's saying happened at the cross. You feel me? Do you see what he's saying? The powers of darkness were stripped of their power, and they were defeated. The cross functions as a public declaration of God's triumph over sin and the powers of darkness through the death of Jesus Christ. Sin's power has been exhausted. Sin's punishment paid. Let's go back to Genesis 3. I want us to view these verses, our text, through the lens of Genesis 3. So in the Garden of Eden, this is biblical theology. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve buy into the devil's lie, right? They disobey God and they are kicked out of the garden. And because of that, sin and death come into the world. And all of us, right, on our birth certificate, it doesn't say Garden of Eden. It does not. None of us are privy to that. So they disobey God. They're kicked out of the garden. Fellowship with God is broken and humanity is cursed. Sin and death will now reign in God's good creation. And yet, in the midst of the cursed language in Genesis 3, we have the promise that the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. But the one doing the crushing will also receive a mortal wound. And that's a picture of victory through death. But the promise in Genesis 3.15, God is announcing his promise to do what? To deal with evil, to deal with all opposition, to deal with sin. Who fulfilled that promise? Who came and crushed the evil one at the cross? Jesus. Through the cross, the curse of sin has been broken. Evil disarmed and defeated. And the way back to God provided. The cross brings those of us who have trusted in Jesus back into the garden, back into fellowship with God. Amen? Last question. This is quick. Number three. What does the cross mean for those who have responded in faith? Who's the cross for? Say it again. Sinners. Sinners. What did God accomplish through the cross? What are the three things? Help me out here. The debt was canceled. What was that? The powers of evil were disarmed. And number three, man, shamed, defeated, right? Number three, what does the cross mean for those who have responded in faith? Verse 16, therefore, this is really important. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So the, the false teachers in Colossae, we're arguing that in order to progress spiritually, certain Jewish practices had to be maintained, right? They were essentially arguing that the cross is not sufficient. What does Paul say in Galatians? If we are an angel, right, add to the gospel, preach a different gospel than the one you heard, let us be eternally condemned, accursed. This is serious stuff. 
So let's go back to the first question because there is one more group that the cross applies to, and it's for believers. It's for, the cross is for believers too, right? It's not just for the lost. Does the cross still have any relevance for us today? Any implications? Yes. Yes. Recall Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. Everybody say if. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And what's that word? The death and the resurrection of Jesus. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. To believe in vain, what does that mean? To believe in vain is to stop looking to the cross of Christ for right standing with God. It happens when we start looking elsewhere. In Colossians 2.16, Paul is saying, in light of what God has accomplished and provided through the cross, right? The three things we've talked about, do not foolishly look elsewhere for right standing with God. The cross is sufficient. The cross is enough. The cross reminds us daily that what Christ has done is enough. If the spiritual beings, right, the demonic forces can no longer pass judgment, how dare we let people pass judgment? In Christ, we have assurance of our right standing with God. We need to live our lives in light of the cross, remembering daily, remembering how often? Daily, what Christ has secured for his people through his death. And whose place? Our place. We need to be reminded of the cross and specifically what it accomplished for us. There's no need to look elsewhere because... We've had our greatest need met at the cross, forgiveness of sin. Can you imagine going to a car mechanic for medical help once you've had a tumor successfully removed? How strange. How strange would that be? The work's been done, and the car mechanic, I mean, they're qualified to do a lot of things, and I'm thankful for them, and I've gone to them. But in this case, right, the car mechanic isn't qualified or equipped to perform the surgery, which you don't even need anymore, right? How silly to go to a car mechanic after the surgery has successfully been done. Hey, can you, can you remove a tumor? What would the car mechanic say? What? I heard about you. I heard you had that removed successfully. What are you doing here? This is strange. Get out of here. And you think, that's so dumb, Chris. That's so fool. I mean, don't we do that? Don't we do that all the time? Are you looking, now think about this, are you looking anywhere else today for right standing with God? I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. I've never cheated on my taxes. I've never cheated on my spouse. I'm nice to my neighbors. So, okay. But, but who's the cross for? We're sinners. And what are we? Sinners can't look to your spiritual track record. What do we owe God? A semi-good life? No. A perfect life. Who has lived a perfect life? None of us, but Jesus. And because we failed to live a perfect life, what do we deserve? 
when you sin, this was Jonathan Edwards, when you sin against an infinite God, you deserve an infinite punishment. We have sinned against an infinite God, all of us, and we deserve an infinite punishment. What's the good news? Christ in our place by his grace to bring us into his space. Amen? So rest in the cross. Don't be foolish. Don't look elsewhere. There's nowhere else to look. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way. I'm not one way among many. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So what do we do with this good news? <laughs> R-P-S. I'm on this kick right now with just, what was it, CPR a few weeks ago? R-P-S. Rest, praise, and share. Because of the cross, we can rest in God's forgiveness, right? So Satan and his minions will continue to accuse, but their accusations are groundless if you're in Christ. Because whose righteousness has been applied to you? Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, he now represents you. And there's no one better to represent you than Jesus. Amen? Come on now. So rest, rest. If we're in Christ, we have a new verdict spoken over us. Not guilty, but innocent, justified. Furthermore, it's foolish to seek to add to what Christ has done. It is finished Rest in his finished work. Next, because of the cross, we have reason to praise Christ. So let's worship him with our, our words and with our lives. The cross moves us to give our very lives to God out of gratitude. And finally, because of the cross, we have good news to share. So share it. Rest, praise, and share. Man, each time one of my little nuggets was born, I'm calling everybody. I'm spazzing out. Oh, he's here. And then, oh man, Samantha, she's here. I'm calling grandparents, friends, ministry partners. They're here. I'm telling the nurses, he came. Good. I got, I'm delivering right now. Over here. Like, I mean, you're just excited. It's good news. And, and good news is meant to be what? Shared. So share it. Let me end with a quote from a Puritan. That's always a good way to end. Stephen Charnock. He says about the cross, let us look upon a crucified Christ, the remedy of all our miseries. His cross, his cross hath procured a crown. His passion hath expiated our transgression. His death hath disarmed the law. His blood hath washed a believer's soul. The death is the destruction of our enemies, the spring of our happiness, and the eternal testimony of divine love. Amen? How have you responded to the divine love of God at the cross? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. How have you responded to that good news? Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you looking elsewhere for right standing with God? Don't be foolish. Look to Jesus. Look to his perfect life. Look to his sacrificial death. Look to the empty tomb. Because through Christ, we can be forgiven. Through Christ, we have a new verdict spoken over us. Not guilty, but innocent. So trust in Jesus. Amen? And if you have trusted in Jesus, friend, friends, rest, praise, and share. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news.
without which we would not be here, without which we would have no hope, without which we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses, in league with Satan, destined to hell. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, has made us alive in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the good news of the perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious and victorious resurrection of your son Jesus in place of sinners like us. And I pray for those who have responded to that good news in faith, that they would rest, that we would rest, that we would praise you with our lives, that we would live our lives for you out of gratitude for who you are and what you've done, and that we would share this good news with others. Father, I pray especially for Sunday. I know that many come on Sunday, Easter Sunday. I, I still don't understand that, but many come who've not been in a long time. And I, I pray now, we pray together, Father, for any unbelievers here, any unbelievers that come on Sunday, that God, in your grace, in your kindness, open their eyes to see their spiritual state apart from Christ. Open their eyes to the good news of what Christ has done. Move them, give them new birth to trust in Jesus and turn from sin for their ultimate good, reconciliation to you, and God, your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.